So I guess the starting point for all of this, the starting point is to really see where your mind is right now. Yeah, so they say start where you are. Where's your mind right now? What's going on with your mind? How does your mind function, behave, and what's up inside? If you were to watch your mind often, you would see the movements of the mind. You would see the, the relentlessness of the mind. It's constantly going, searching, wanting more, doing. In Buddhism, we talk about, they're called the kleshas or the, um, the defilements of the mind. And they break them down into three groups. One is something like desire, wanting, attachment, craving, lust, kind of these sorts of things of wanting something that's not there to kind of come in, feeling this moment's not enough and wanting this other thing to feel good. There's something that would be called anger or ill will or hatred or aversion which could be under the category of wanting something that is here not to be here anymore, wanting something to be destroyed, changed, just that general fiery sense of anger and wanting to destroy and get rid of kind of feelings. And then the third one, it's delusion or ignorance. And one could actually say that that ignorance is actually at the base of the other two as well. And in Buddhism, they have a lot of different kinds of structures for understanding the practice and understanding the mind and what we're talking about. And even when the Buddha, on the night of his enlightenment, he kind of understood, he called them the 12 links, which is how beings are born into this realm and how they kind of pass away and then how they come back and how they're stuck in that cycle. And he said that it all kind of begins, um, the kind of root of that is ignorance is that we're not seeing things clearly. We're not seeing what is actually pleasurable as pleasurable. We're not seeing what is actually painful as painful. We're not seeing the world like it really is. We're not seeing our mind like it really is. We don't understand things like they truly are. And because of that, we're often acting and re reacting in ways that are creating more of the things that we don't want. Um, so as a monk, you know, you're, there's no lying and no killing and no stealing and no sex and no drugs and you're kind of in this environment and there's no money and you just eat at these times and you kind of eat whatever's given and, you know, if you had told the rules of being a monk to somebody, and those are just the very basic rules, as a fully ordained monk we had like 140 rules or something, if you, you know, said all the rules to somebody, they'd say, it sounds like you're a prisoner. Right? They'd say that sounds miserable. It sounds like that doesn't sound like that's a happy or peaceful place. That sounds like that would be really oppressive and difficult. And that's because we're used to doing whatever we want whenever we want. Our mind is used to running the show and trying to get pleasure through our senses, right? You want to hear something good, you turn on the radio, you want to eat something good, you go buy it. You want to feel something good, you go get a massage or whatever that you find ways to get the pleasure, to get the things wherever you want it. And it kind of scratches the itch in the moment, but all of our sensory pleasures and desires and things, it's a little bit like poison ivy actually, that you'll itch it, but then another one will pop up or it'll get worse or you want it again or it keeps going. 
And if you really watch the mind, if you really just watch what's going on, you always are going to want something else. Yeah, I often refer to this book my mom read me as a kid called If You Give a Mouse a Cookie, right? Which is like you give the mouse the cookie, he wants a glass of milk, you give him some milk, he wants the napkin, you give him a napkin, he wants to make a paper airplane, then he wants to go outside to throw it, then he's running around, and then he gets hot, so he wants to come inside, he takes a nap, he wakes up, and then he wants another cookie, right? And that it's this endless stream of movement. Yeah, if you're always wanting the next thing, you always want the next thing. And... That's kind of how we all live our lives, is we're all just kind of jumping into the next thing that we want and trying to find a way to get it. And then we sit down to meditate and we wonder why it's so difficult. We wonder why we struggle so much to stop, to be still, to feel content. And it's really because we've been building up the karma, we've been feeding this kind of momentum of doing, of wanting, of getting, getting more, and then also getting away from things we don't want, right? If the mosquito bites you, you kill it, right? If you feel hungry, you go get some food. If there's somebody who's being a jerk to you, you just, you know, unfriend them on Facebook and you get them out of your life and you kind of actively, you know, destroy the things around you that you're not digging and you actively try to pull in the things that you feel like you do want in whatever way that looks. And to be able just to sit here in meditation in this carpet in this kind of boring room, it's a little bit hot, it's a little bit muggy, it's kind of boring. We've all had a long day. Some of you are already starting to fall asleep as I'm talking to you. And now I say to you to kind of, you know, be happy and be content and feel like you're in this blissful, great place. You know, it's kind of this big question mark comes up like, huh? You know, how does that work? And it's because we've been training ourselves to, you know, fulfill our desires versus be free of desires. And those are two different things, right? So one thing, it's always getting the thing that you want. And that's like at home, you know, my parents' house, they have a TV with like 1,800 channels or something. And there's never anything on. And you just sit there flipping through the channels endlessly. So you have this endless buffet of different channels uh, and you're always going to be discontent going through them and it's kind of like a hell realm right you're just it's like you're in hell you're just nothing's enough nothing's good nothing's what you want right that's what having all these choices means and my mom said to me but you know when she was a kid there was only one channel and there was only maybe like one show on once a day and there was often just this kind of like picture up that you know, I don't know, I had like a, like a crosshair almost or like a little broadcasting station and it was kind of like just this picture and they would sit there and just watch this picture together, her and her sister and her family. They would just sit and just kind of watch this one picture for hours in their house like, because that was what was on TV until the actual show would come on. You know, perfectly happy just watching this one picture. You know, but now that we have thousands and thousands of channels, I don't feel like people are happier than they were watching TV. I feel like they're more discontent. You always feel like maybe there's something better on or this isn't really good enough. So it's really funny because choices, although you'd think choices would create happiness, often choices lead to a discontentment that you always think there's something better that you could have. This isn't enough. You want more. It builds up that desire and it also atrophies our ability just to be content with whatever we have in the moment. So kind of just understanding on these really basic levels how the mind works. Um, And that's just these basic principles of wanting and not wanting and 
discontentment. But when I've gone deeper into meditation, I've also really also, you know, I've hit these levels where a duality disappears, right? The sense of myself and, and everything else around me, that's not there. Even the sense of myself and my breath or myself and my thoughts that like I'm thinking, right? Or I'm feeling that disappears, right? That the will itself caves in, caves in on itself, that there's just this presence and a wholeness and this kind of stillness and this bliss and this openness and this peace. And it's also cooling and relieving. And it's this amazing, tranquil feeling that, God, you just stay there forever. And, you know, I did. I stayed many hours in meditation, just enjoying this peace and the stillness of just being in a mind that didn't have any separation anymore. And that's kind of at the base of this practice that's, that's available to everybody. That's kind of, you know, breaking down the layers of minds. That's even what's waiting for us are these exalted states that, you know, I don't even really talk about that much because sometimes I feel like they're not helpful because maybe they'll fuel even more discontentment in all of you guys for like, you know, what the fuck? I can't even like sit still for five minutes and you're talking about, you know, this reaching God or something, you know, but there's more to this, what we're doing, right? It goes deeper. But to get to those places, you often need to build a bit of a foundation. And that's a foundation of virtuous behavior. That's a a foundation of throughout your day, not trying to escape every situation if it's unpleasant, right? And that's why even if you're in traffic or you're in the car, you're stressed out or something's happening, so what? Yes, driving in Boston is stressful. So why not just, okay, I'm, I'm a bit stressed right now. I feel a little bit of tension, my heart's beating. Okay, shake it out, keep going, let it go. It'll leave when it's done and that's okay. To not think that we need to do something all the time to fix everything that's unpleasant, right? There are some things in life that are just stressful things, right? That's okay for us anyway. Maybe as we practice more, things get less stressful. I teach kids, um, a couple times a week and they're you know little kids maybe they're between like 11 and 5 or something and I try to do meditation and yoga with them and have varying degrees of success right <laughs> and the group comes in and they're with me for half an hour and then another group comes in another group comes in and and I've been doing that with my girlfriend as well and say she couldn't do it so the kids all came in to do yoga and it was a big group and I was like okay you guys ready and they're like yeah and I'm like well, let me tell you a secret I've never actually taught a yoga class before you know and I just did the couple things that I knew. And then there's one girl that's like, oh, this is easy. I know how to do this. And I said, well, why don't you be the teacher? I don't really know what I'm doing, you know? And then she, so it's like 11-year-old girl was teaching five-year-olds yoga. And I just sat there and I was like, this is awesome. Like, great, you know? And I took her class, you know? And afterwards I went down and I talked to the directors and they're, you know, saying, oh, you're doing a great job. And we're, you know, we're all going on a field trip to the beach tomorrow or whatever, but you're actually not going to do that. Maybe you'll do a ropes course, but we actually don't know what you're going to do. And I said, you know, just tell me the morning of and it's fine. And she's like, yeah, it's really good that you're so flexible, that whatever we kind of throw at you, you're just flexible with. And I said, I wouldn't be much of a meditation teacher if I wasn't, right? But that's kind of also part of what this is doing is that the more that you start just making do with what you have and not getting overwhelmed and not being afraid of things and just kind of being and everything's okay and starting to deal with what's arising in your mind, situations in life in general just become easier. And even when something really horrible happens, it's horrible, but it's just that. 
you can just say that's horrible and you'll feel as much pain as there is involved in that situation, but you won't feel more pain. And there's many things that I know that I face in my life that the average person would freak out with. And I don't freak out because I built up a different relationship to life. I'm more open, more flexible, more easygoing. And a lot of that was built in. I learned a lot of that. What things to let go of, what things to be active in. You have to know, you know, when you actually can do something and when you can do nothing. And what is the cost of your own mental space, your own mental freedom, your own mental peace in your daily life. And you have to start to figure it out and also look more closely because you know when I'm driving in Boston and I'm late to teach meditation, for instance, which has happened. I'd be driving in Boston to teach and I'd be late and then my navvy would say to do something and I'd do it and then it would be like, no, I didn't mean that street, I meant the other street because Boston has like streets on top of streets on top of streets. Then I'd then be running even later, right? And naturally I start to feel stressed. And then I would, as I'm driving, say to myself, well, what are you actually stressed about? What's actually the big deal? Yeah, well, that I'll come and all these people are waiting and they'll be like upset that I'm late. And I would look at that and I'd say, well, do you really think they're going to be upset at you? You know, and I said, well, probably not. And I can explain what happened. And, you know, I kind of would look deeper at, well, so what's actually the problem? And it's more that I have an expectation on myself for being on time, that in my blueprint taught to me by my parents and stuff, like being on time is respectful. Being on, you're supposed to be on time. So if I'm not on time, it's like a threat to this blueprint that I was given of how you're supposed to be. And that's in conflict and that's why I feel stressed. And I'd look at that blueprint and say, well, Seth, you know, I would like to give you another blueprint that's maybe different than mom and dad's. And that blueprint is you should never be having to feel this stressed. You should never have to feel this horrible. So I'm going to relieve you of having to be on time all the time. And you do your best. But if you're not, I'm not going to take it out on myself. I'm not going to blame myself. And I don't expect anyone else to blame me. Yeah. And then the next time I was later, I didn't feel that same feeling of stress. It was much easier. I still tried to get there as quick as I could, but it wasn't such a, a, a huge deal. And so that's another part of the practice is that when we start to feel suffering come in, we have to look at it and you have to see is this an, an avoidable kind of suffering or not? You know, if, uh, if you're walking outside and a bee flies over and stings your arm, that was not avoid, you couldn't have done anything about that. Right? You can right now go and get some ointment. You can do something now as much as possible. But you couldn't have stopped it. Right? But if you're walking and maybe uh, you know, there's a person driving the car in front of you and they stop short and you, oh, and you stop short, you know, and then you start yelling at them like, you stupid idiot, what are you doing? Look where you're going, da, 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 the whole kind of story. And then you stop and you look at, wow, I'm really angry right now. You could look at that and say, you know what, actually, that is avoidable. I have no idea what's going on in that car. Actually, I was just afraid. I was afraid, and that's why I'm getting angry. Why not just stay with the fact, like, oh, my God, that was scary, but not project it onto that person as doing something wrong. Yeah, not blaming them because I felt something painful. Yeah, that feeling is mine. And to start really looking and kind of what you were saying about the whole chicken and the egg thing with meditation and then, like, your life... 
the more that we meditate, the more that you practice meditation, it's kind of like if you live a healthy life and then you get in touch with a bacteria or a virus, because you've built up a strong immune system and your body's strong and healthy, you have less chance of getting sick, right? So the more that we practice meditation, the more that we really practice sitting here, feeling whatever we feel, dropping in, learning that we are masters of our own minds, the more that we can really get into that zone and train it and feel it, the more that we're in daily life and something happens, we've made our minds so strong in this training ground that when we go out there and something hits us, it doesn't knock us over as easily. Yeah, and that's kind of the way that you have to look at it, that what we're doing here, it's like preventative medicine in a sense as well for your mental and emotional bodies, is that you're building up forbearance, you're building up gentleness, kindness, you're building up space. Yeah, you're starting to let go of reactiveness. Yeah, you're starting to realize things like anger, things like aggression, things like fear, things like boredom. Right? There's all of these different feelings that we have that are just hurting us. Yeah? And maybe we'll try to give them to other people, right? That anger is yours. You made me feel that. You know, Seth, you're talking crap. You're the one being boring. It's not mine. We love to try to give our feelings away, right? Blame, project. But the more that we can really just be with ourselves and realize that through our own perception, our own ability to shift our mind, to shift our focus, to shift our language around a situation as well, we can actually completely shift our experience of what's going on. And the more that we can kind of practice this in meditation and open up and break things down and feel more stable and solid and peaceful and content, the more that we'll be, we won't be as ruffled in daily life. And the Buddha talked about um, what is it that ruffles? And he called it, it's been a little while, I think it's the eight, I think it's the eight winds called the eight wounds. I don't know if it's six or eight. We'll start with eight and I'll see. Maybe we have to take a couple away. I think it's eight. So it's pleasure and pain, right? Pleasure and pain are two of the things that ruffle us. Pleasure, we go for it. Pain, we push away. Pleasure and pain. Gain and loss, right? If you lose something, a person, a, a job opportunity, money, whatever, something breaks, right? That horrible feeling of loss or gain, Right, you get something, oh my God, that excitement, now this thing's mine, wanting to get something, right? People that gamble, you play the lottery, you're striving all day long to get that perfect something that you're missing, right? Gain and loss, there's things that ruffle your feathers. Fame and disrepute, right? So people want to be famous, they want to be renowned, they want to be significant and special and known, or they don't want people to talk bad about them, so you're always polite, you always try to be like a good person and let everyone see you. Um, and what is it? Pleasure, pain, gain, loss, fame, and distribute. Uh, and I think there's two more that I forget right now. So we'll stick with six. Right yeah, that there are these different things, that they, the vicissitudes of life, the comings and goings of life that are always gonna be there. There will always be pleasure and pain. As long as you have a human body, you're gonna experience pleasure and pain. It's, it's hardwired into this vessel that you are connected to. Pleasure and pain, inescapable. Yeah, gain and loss, inescapable. Yeah, all of these things, they're inescapable. They're built in, they're part of being a human being. They're part of this human experience. So what are you going to do about that? How do you want to change your relationship to all of that? And it's really that kind of simple as how are you changing your relationship to life, to being alive? What is life for you? You know, and it's... 
kind of something that you could figure out in a second or you could take, you know, a lifetime to figure that out. Um, so you're asking like how often one meditates. That's one of the questions. So, you know, in the monastery, I meditated every single twice a day for five years and it was great, but it also didn't bring me much. And then one day I talked to a monk who taught me the right way to meditate. And then a 20 minute meditation was deeper than anything I'd experienced in those five years. And so there's really no right or wrong way to do it. There's no amount of time that makes sense or not. It's really just kind of sticking to it, figuring it out, working with it until it works. If you can get the right understanding, quality over quantity, you can really get in there and do it. Um, so I would say for you guys, when I very started, started practicing, I meditated once a week. Yeah, I meditated once a week in my bedroom. You guys are meditating once a week here with me. So I would say to you, if you're just beginning, meditate once a week at home without me. If you're beginning, 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 once a week without me. Yeah, if you got that down and that feels good, you'll naturally start to expand that because you like to do that, so that's a nice thing, right? So building up that kind of time, building up that training ground to bring the mind into that place of stability and strength. Um, there's things like mantras that one can chant. So mantras are something, they actually came later. I would even say that they have nothing to do with original Buddhism. Um, but mantras are things that can remind you, like Om Mani Padme Hom, which is like a Tibetan mantra, which is kind of connected to loving kindness and compassion. So you'll chant this and just imagine that as you're chanting this, you're sending, you know, love and, and relieving the suffering of the earth, right? So just by chanting this thing, you're building up this feeling of love in yourself and you're also breaking down all of your anger, right, for instance because it's hard to sit there chanting, may all beings be free from suffering, may all beings be happy. And then you walk outside and it'd be hard to yell at the guy for cutting you off. You know, if someone cut you off and you're like, well, like, I hope that that guy at least got where he needed to go. You know, that you start to shift. So it's kind of training your mind to be more open and more happy and things like this. So there's mantras that do this. And there's also these, um, these phrases, right, that Pema Chodron talks about and this is from the Kadampa tradition, I believe, of Tibetan Buddhism, um, I believe. And there's different phrases that you can focus on, and, and those phrases, they hold wisdom. I actually only remember one of those phrases. I think there's like 30 or even 50 of them. But one of the phrases is, drive all blames into one. Yeah? And I think that's such a great phrase, drive all blames into one. Because if you look at your life, and you look at all the things that you're blaming. You know, actually, I, I interviewed the Dalai Lama. Um, he came and did an event at our monastery, and we got to go to Paris, and we flew to, like, the presidential suite of, like, the most expensive hotel in Paris, and we went in. Got to interview the Dalai Lama, and the topic was business and Buddhism. And it was because we were with a German business magazine that was trying to help with the advertising. But for them to promote the story, they also, like, had, like, their questions about you know, how does this, you know, guy from the Himalayan mountains, uh, how is he relevant to what's going on in like, you know, Frankfurt Financial District kind of. And the Dalai Lama pretty quickly got to the point and he said, if you look at what's happening with the world, if you look at things like exploitation in the world, if you look at what we're doing to the environment, if you look at companies, if you look at wages not really being what they should be, if you look at all of the financial problems that you can see, you could drive all of that down to greed 
hatred and ignorance. That you could take all of the problems that you see in the financial world and you could say either people are being greedy, people are being mean, malicious, they don't care, power hungry over other people, yeah, or they're just being ignorant. They don't understand that their happiness is linked to the happiness of others. If they can dump toxic waste in the ocean but save a couple bucks, they do it, thinking that that's a great solution and not understanding that if they themselves have children, those children are going to be suffering from what's happening. And if your child suffers, you suffer too. So they're not aware of how their actions are actually even affecting themselves, let alone everyone else around them. And by driving all of our blames into one, then you really start thinking, well, what is the one thing that I need to blame for everything? What is the one thing that you need to blame for everything? Something in here, right? It's gotta be. What is it inside of myself that I need to blame for everything? What is the part of me that's to blame for all of this? What is that? Yeah? Again, for Buddhism, going back, the ignorance. Yeah? What is that part of me that thinks I'm separate than all of you? What is that part of me that thinks I'm more important than all of you? That I matter more than all of you? That my happiness matters more than anybody else's happiness? Yeah? What is that part that really feels and perceives that it's the separate, independent, existing thing that's so freaking important that at the expense of other people, of other beings of the world, it pushes its own agenda through and yet still ends up being miserable at the end of the day. Yeah, all these businessmen who have all this money and all this power are going off and doing drugs and getting drunk and they're miserable as well. So it's not even like when you have power and money, ah, oh, I've made it. Not even close. Yeah, people are overdosing all the time, all these stars. Yeah, so really looking closely, what is that one blame in myself? What is the point? Yeah, what is the part of me that doesn't see clearly the truth? Yeah, it's an amazing topic of reflection. You could go on probably a couple year retreats with just that going around in your head. Yeah, what is the one blame that I can drive all of this into? What's the point here? Yeah. So when you kind of take it from that place and you, you really understand, you know, I am living in a state of perpetual ignorance. And like I said, when I was in my deep meditation, even the sense of self disappeared. Even my identity disappeared, right? So one could even say that's the will disappeared, right? Now that I'm back, right, I came out of that state and then the will picks back up, it's hard to take it seriously anymore. When I did the 10-day Vipassana retreat, this is like these 10-day retreats they have. They're free. You could do one. There's one in Shelburne Falls, Mass, actually. So if you have 10 days, you want to go on a super crazy deep retreat, you can go there. Yeah, it's 10 days silent retreat, 10 hours of meditation a day, right? Sitting all day long, quiet. Mind is going crazy. I was fighting with myself. I broke down crying one day. I, all this stuff happened, you know. And then finally, I really got quiet, and I was having these great realizations, and it was this really beautiful, powerful experience. But the whole time I was watching my mind just talking nonsense. You know, I'd sit down to meditate and my mind would be singing songs in my head. Or it'd be saying, oh, this is too hard. You, you know, I don't know if I can do this. Or it'd be saying, no, it's great. It's fine. You got this. You're going to kill it. Uh, how long have we been sitting? Like, should I stretch my... 
it was just going crazy, right? It was just talking, contradicting itself, just aimless and senseless and just going. And, you know, if you sit for a hundred hours over the course of like a week with just watching your mind, it's insane. You see, you're insane. Yeah, I realize I can't believe anything that I think, right? My thoughts are not me. They have nothing to do with me. I don't even believe any of these thoughts anymore. They're absurd. This is crazy, right? The retreat ends and they give us one day after the retreat ends that we can talk again to kind of like reacclimatize. So you can talk a little bit again, but then you still meditate and talk, right? And there's like a couple teachers that like lead the retreat. So I was able to talk to a couple participants finally and we went for like a walk and one of them said, you know, what do you think those, the teachers do in their free time? Do you think they're meditating the whole time or do you think they're sleeping? And one of the other participants that was with us, there's three of us, he's like, oh, they're definitely sleeping. I mean, why would they meditate? They're probably just relaxing, chilling out, and they just come and do the thing and go back. And I said, no way, that's absurd. They're practitioners, of course they're meditating. And I felt, you know, my stomach starting to tense and this kind of heat rising in my body and my fists slowly clenching and almost like an indignance arising in me. And because I'd been practicing feeling my body and being mindful for 10 days, I felt this state change rise and I stopped myself. And I looked and I thought, Seth, have you learned nothing? You've just spent 10 days realizing that your thoughts are bullshit based on nothing. And here you are defending outwardly one of those thoughts just because that's the thought that you happened to have at that moment. And I felt that situation and I released my fist and I released my chest and I looked up at the two guys and I said, you know, I actually have no idea what the teacher was doing. And that's the truth. And then I kind of excused myself and left and I said, wow, you know, it happens that quick. Yeah, and now take the average person who has never made that experience, right? The average person that believes themselves, that defends themselves, that pushes their belief on others, right? Makes Facebook posts about it or runs political campaigns about it. It's craziness and like no wonder the world is in the state that it's in, right? If you actually see it from that level, wow, we're we are being controlled by these minds that are not being controlled, right? And so that's why, you know, it's part of living in this world. That's why it's hard to just live. It's also hard to be in relationships. It's hard to have, if you have children, if you have partners, if you have parents, if you have friends, if you interact with any human being at all besides yourself, it's challenging because not only can we pretty much not control anybody else, but people can't really control themselves either. Yeah, and oftentimes I was in a Zen monastery and our Zen tradition, you know, our teacher, his way of making you change was he kind of realized if things get bad enough, people change. So he kind of let you know the way out and if you don't take the way out, he'd go, okay, and then he would just push you deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into your suffering until you finally say, okay, I give up. Show me the way out. It's okay. That sometimes he would have to give people, I guess that's like the hard way. I'm giving you the two choices. If you don't want to take it, 
then you might just have to kind of go through your own karma, right? That's the definition of karma, that you are getting results from your actions. Um, there's a lot of specific things that I could say to your case, for instance. Uh, I would say send them to Tony Robbins. That was like a really powerful event, right? Broke through a lot. Send them to a Vipassana retreat. If you're sitting for 10 days with yourself, you're going to have to face it and go through it, you know? But at the end of the day, you know, we can love people. We can give them little tips and tricks and advice. But actually, we can't really change other people. They have to want it themselves. And that's where it has to come from. People have to want to do it. We have to want to do it, right? We have to want to meditate. We have to want to practice. We have to want to go through this, even though it's difficult. And the Buddha said this. He's like, the Dharma that I teach, right? The Dharma is the name of the teachings. The Dharma, he said, it's actually amazing because what I teach goes against what people actually want to do. I, I teach you to sit still. People don't want to sit still. Yeah, I teach you to let go of things you want. People don't want to let go of things they want. I teach you to accept the things you don't want. People don't want to do that. He said, it's amazing because the Dharma I teach is exactly opposite of what everybody would want to do, yet people are still following these teachings. People are still doing it. Because we realize there's something in it. Because we realize that we've been going on the same path for so long and getting the same results and we just don't understand why. Yeah, we keep doing the same thing. I remember like a Simpsons episode and there was like a, I even forget the whole context, but there was like a cupcake that was like electrocuted and Bart Simpson was like, ooh, a cupcake. And he's like, ow. And he looked at the cupcake, he's like, what are you doing? He grabbed it again, ow. He's like, why you little, and just grabbed it again, ow, ow. You know, and they eventually, I don't know, had to like unplug it. His sister was like, okay, this is just mean. You know, that we just keep going for the same thing again and again and again, and it never really does it for us. And you guys know, I mean, you're here, right? I mean, we're all here. We've, we all have quite a few decades of life behind us, and we still really haven't figured it out, yet we really haven't changed our approach. We keep doing the same thing, and we keep getting the same results, and it just confuses us, and we get frustrated and irritated, and we think maybe there's something wrong with us or there's something wrong with the world. I would say maybe it's neither. Maybe we're just ignorant. Maybe we just see things incorrectly. We have the incorrect approach. Yeah, we have incorrect perceptions. Those perceptions aren't me. They're just the perceptions that I'm following. Yeah. Those behaviors aren't me. They're just the behaviors that I am behaving. <laughs> so really using this whole process of meditation on the most basic level, on the most basic, basic level, is just a time to sit and rest and be present with whatever's here. On the most basic level, yeah, this totally new concept of like, try not to please yourself, try not to get away from things that are not totally to your satisfaction, yeah, sit here in this room and sweat, yeah, and have an achy knee and feel a little bit tired and a little bit bored and see how you can make that an okay situation for yourself. How you can just a little bit practice patience, a little bit forbearance, a little bit perception change to just accept how things are, to arise contentments. Yeah, I'll leave you with a story that my teacher Achim Brahm told me. Uh, I don't know if I've ever told this, maybe in one of the other classes, but 
he, he was a, um, a theoretical physicist in Cambridge before he was a monk, right? So a very, very smart guy. And um, he said that, I think it was even, I think it was Heisenberg. It was either Heisenberg or John Nash. I don't know, it was one of these two guys. Um, but they said, you don't really understand your field unless you can explain it to the girl serving you a drink behind the bar. Yeah, so that could be like a little bit of a sexist comment these days, but the point is, is that if you can't explain what you do, if you're a scientist or you're a physicist or whatever, if you, a philosopher, if you can't explain in very simple, easy terms to somebody, you don't really fully know what you're talking about. And with that in mind, he said, so I thought of another way to explain what is enlightenment. And the way that he explained enlightenment is in the context of a story. And the story is called The Wishing Game. Okay, so I'm going to tell you guys the story of The Wishing Game. Okay. So there was five children sitting around. And the children said, hey, let's play The Wishing Game together. And the way The Wishing Game works is that we each make a wish, and whoever comes up with the best wish at the end wins could imagine like the kids I was with today playing this game, right? It's like, okay, great, let's play it. So the first kid says, okay, I want the new Xbox with all of the games. And all the kids are like, ooh, okay, good wish, right? And then the next girl thought about it and she's like, that's pretty good. I want the video game store. That way I could play the Xbox and all of the games and then every other game of every other system that comes out and then everything that's ever gonna happen, I can own it and it'll be mine. And the third boy goes, that's a good wish. I'm gonna wish for a hundred billion dollars. I'm gonna buy the entire mall, which includes the video game store but also the food court. And because I have that much money, I'll probably just buy a university, give myself a degree so I can drop out of school right now, and I can just go live at the mall and play games whenever I want and eat and go hang out in the beds in the Bed Bath & Beyond and, you know, just have a nice life living in the mall that now belongs to me, and I'll just enjoy my life like that. And the third girl said, man, that's a really good wish. I actually don't know how to make a better wish than $100 billion but I'll give it a shot. She said, I'm gonna wish for three wishes. For my first wish, I want $100 billion. For my second wish, I wanna just own them all. And for my third wish, I'm gonna ask for three more wishes. That way I can go on wishing forever. Try to beat that. And all the kids were like, ooh, and she threw down the gauntlet with that one. But there was one boy left, and he looked at her, and he thought about it, and he said, you know, having an infinity of wishes fulfilled is pretty good, but I know something better. He said, I wish to be so content that I never want to wish for anything ever again. And that boy's name was the Buddha. 
And a lot of us in our lives, we are striving to have an infinity of wishes fulfilled. What we're not seeing clearly where the ignorance lies is that that is hell. To always be wanting and wanting and wanting and wanting, even if you're getting. Think about, we use the word spoiled, right? A child or an adult is spoiled. What is being spoiled? They get everything they want, and what happens to them? They become miserable people. They become miserable. That's it right there. If you get an infinity of wishes fulfilled, you become miserable. You become angry and easily annoyed, and you feel like everything's wrong, you're entitled, like the world owes you something, because you're just so used to getting what you want when you want it. You complain constantly because you can't put up with the slightest thing that doesn't feel good. Or you get, you order the pizza, but oh, it's not good, it's too greasy, it's too much this, too much that. That even when you get the things you want, they're not good enough, your standards are higher and higher because you can get anything you want. So having an infinity of wishes fulfilled for a human brain, for a human mind, for a human being, actually creates an immense amount of suffering. They are constantly in a state of discontentment and misery. So to be content, yeah, the most content people I ever met were the beggars in India. They had nothing and they had the biggest smiles on their faces. The best meals I've ever eaten were the ones I ate when I was like hiking and you have like a little can of beans on a stove and that's all you have and those are the best freaking beans you've ever eaten in your life. Because it's all you have and it's amazing because of that. That my mom watches that channel picture on the TV with her whole family for hours because wow, that's all there is to watch and it's amazing. Yeah, that when we simplify, when we have less, when we're content, that's where happiness comes from. And what is the deepest form of contentment you can find? Sitting here in a really empty, boring room with your eyes closed, breathing. That's as simple as it could get. That's as simple as things can get. And you have these thoughts and these feelings that are still trying to express discontentment, right? You're sitting here and you're still wanting other things. The discontentment's pouring out of you through the karma, through the momentum you've created, through living a life heedlessly. Yeah, and your job is to sit and to look at all that stuff and to find how can I shift my relationship to all of this? That I can really train my brain, my mind, my heart to say this is enough, this is okay. I don't need anything else, I'm fine, I'm happy. And even let go of the thoughts, even let go of the feelings, let go of the body even start letting go of the sense of self, even maybe start letting go of the consciousnesses, right? On the most basic fundamental levels of human experience, releasing things and being content, letting go, wanting nothing, and seeing where that gets you. So again, for our practice today, I've gone and talked us 45 minutes. 
So we're going to again just have one long sitting practice today. And we're again going to practice being content. We're going to practice wanting nothing. We're going to practice just being here. And simultaneously, we're going to be watching ourselves. And don't judge yourself, don't fight yourself, don't struggle, but watch it and see what's going on. Just look at it. Where is it trying to go? What does it think it wants? I'm tired, I want to lie down, I'm hungry, I want to get up, I want to stretch, I want to think, I want to do this. Watch all that stuff come up. And maybe even with the side thought, like, where's that actually going to even get me? Yeah, you've been following that voice your entire life. Has it worked? Yeah, try something new. Try listening to that, feeling those things, seeing what your urges are, your desires are. See where your greed and your grasping is. See where your hatred and pushing away and not wanting and your anger and your upsetness is, your annoyances. See where your ignorance is. What's the blame? Where can I drive this whole practice? What doesn't get it? What still doesn't get it? What am I still missing? Yeah, bring all that into the present moment and just kind of let that bake in the oven of your mind and see what comes out the other side. Okay? So get into your positions and get active. Activate your body, sit up. Feel free to shake out, stretch out, change your physiology. When it's hot like this, it's really easy to get tired. It gets heavy, right? So really just be a bit of a spiritual warrior today. Really kind of jump up and say, okay, I'm going for it. I'm going to sit. Yeah. I'm not going to do anything, but I'm going to really just, I'm going to go for this. I'm going to be present. I'm not going to run away. 